All right, would you open God's precious holy word to Psalm 61? In the Hebrew Bible, it's nine verses. In your Bible, I think it's eight verses. So we'll probably beat the Methodists to Cracker Barrel tonight. <laughs> Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. It is generally agreed that the setting against which David was inspired to write this psalm was during the time of his exile when Absalom had ascended himself to the throne. We've been studying about that uh, era in our studies in Second Samuel, this happens to be one of the Psalms that goes along with that era, with that time. David is, because of the language, we can see that David has retreated. This probably is very early in the rebellion because he has retreated to a place where at the writing of this Psalm, he is apparently alone. And he is crying out to God in this very low point of his life. So first of all, he makes his cry, his call to God. He sets the way that it is for the conductor on Neganath of David. Now let's talk about that word Neganath. That is the, that's the singular. You'll see it in a plural a few times. It is the instruction to play the psalm on a stringed instrument. This instrument had eight strings. It could be played with a bow or it could be played with a thing that was sort of like a pick. Some say it was David's favorite instrument and that he was a master of it. But because it's in the singular, we come to understand that this is a very private psalm. This is something that David is doing from within himself. He's alone and this is his very private devotion, very private prayer as he sings it uh, to Yahweh, to God, O Elohim. Now, therefore, he must have been alone contemplating everything that's happening. This is a major, of course, a major problem. There has been treason, rebellion, King David is not on the throne. So he's deep within himself saying this prayer and then singing it as a, as a psalm. Hearken, attend. That word actually in some, in your Bible, that pay attention or hearken, uh, attend, to my prayer, it may be at the end of verse one in yours, I don't know, but the 
Hebrew text starts here in verse two and the, the Hebrew word there, uh, that, that word means attend, not only pay attention to my prayer, but move on it to my request, my prayer. Hearken Elohim to my request, my prayer. Listen to my prayer. You see that kind of language often in the Psalms. It's, it's, a, it's from someone who is in a desperate position. Thinking back then, we can only imagine, you know, David was a much older man. It's not going to be as easy this time to run from Absalom like it was to run from Saul. Saul's army was big and bulky. A lot of them, and it, you know, it took a lot of, it took thousands of troops longer to move a distance than it would have just the few hundred that David had. And it was easy for them to hide in the hills and all that. But it's not, it's not that way this time because much of his army is just following the leadership or, or whatever of Absalom. And it's a time of utter confusion. It's obvious why David would feel desperate. And so in desperation, he seeks the immediate attention and action of God in his prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry out to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Now the story is told, I think there are four, maybe four, I wills, I will this, and then it leads to the next. And it's sort of a crescendo from the first I will to the next I will that I think is on the next slide. He cries out from the place he calls the end of the earth. That's a, that's a, a Hebraism unique to the Israelites and later to, the, to the, just the Jews. David had always enjoyed access to the immediate presence of the tabernacle as it was set up in those days. There wasn't a temple yet, but there was a place afforded for the tabernacle. So it was sort of set up the way that it was when they were wandering in the wilderness. And this was the place where uh, the Israelites worshiped Yahweh. That would be in the place considered to be the center of, of the world to the Jewish mind, to the Israelite mind. Anything moved away from that any distance, especially in David's case, since he had been moved by force, by necessity. It wasn't his choice to be in a place where he couldn't have access to the tabernacle. Therefore, it didn't matter if it was on the other side of the globe or if it was just a few miles away, being in exile and forced to be in, in a setting where he could not come before the tabernacle, 
it would be the end of the earth. So it's, it's, it's a remote, spiritually especially, it's a remote, desolate place. And it's not where David wanted to be. David wanted to be worshiping Yahweh. He wanted to have, he wanted to know that any time, day or night, he had access to the tabernacle, the priesthood. He can make a sacrifice. Uh, he can make a vow, pay his vows, pay his sacrifices. Something that was a regular part of his life. This was worship to him as it was to all, um, as it was to all serious Israelites. I'm at the end of the earth. From the end of the earth, I will cry out to you when my heart is overwhelmed. It's a very strong word in the Hebrew text. It means that he doesn't have an answer. He, he doesn't know what to do. There's no, there's, there's no easy way to deal with his situation from his perspective. Now, David's been there before. So this is not like something he doesn't have experience in. And we've seen it in other Psalms through the years as we've touched on various portions of the Psalms. Desperate David. A little different this time because he expressly makes himself, he expressly places himself in a position of private individual devotion. He doesn't intend for anybody else to be around. It's him and God. And he expresses it the way that he introduces it, the way it's introduced here. He is in a distant place and he doesn't want to be there. He cries out, he's overwhelmed. He's, he has no answers. At this moment, he doesn't have a plan. All he knows to do is run. And then he begins to discover that others have come with him and others who are loyal to him begin to form their own society outside the, outside the city. And we, we've seen how it all worked out in our study in 2 Samuel. Heart is overwhelmed. I cry out to you when my heart is overwhelmed to the rock that is higher than I, lead me there. You lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now this speaks of an unassailable high point. It is so high that the only way someone could be there is if God brings him there. It's the high place where God is and it's so high only the grace of God could bring somebody up there to that place of safety. We'll see a little more description, but a, a little later it gives us a little clearer idea here in just a couple of minutes about how David appeals for his defense and his safety. But the first thing that comes from his guitar, his song, his prayer, in his request after he asks God to hearken and listen is that he will be brought to a place where nobody can hurt him. No one can assail this high place. It's higher than me. You lead me to the rock 
that is higher than I. It doesn't matter if he's alone. Doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter if, if Absalom's army numbers in the thousands. It doesn't matter. If he is in the unassailable high place where God is, nothing can touch him. Nothing can harm him. My heart is overwhelmed. I don't have any answers, but I'm in danger. And I want to be by your side. I want to be where you are. I want to be in that place that is higher than I. The only way I can get there is if you'll take me there. So this is, this is how he cries out to God. Now he begins to confess his faith in God. You were a shelter for me, a tower of strength in the face of the enemy. Now, we've been through David's life up to the time of his victory over Absalom in our study in 2 Samuel on Wednesday night. We can go all the way back to where David is being pursued by Saul. We can go all the way back to where David goes down and confronts the giant. That really is a, is a his, his battle with the giant is really the story of his life. That he would have no one but God to stand with him and only God could deliver him the victory. It's been that way all of his life. All the way through until after the rebellion of Absalom and all the way. So it's, it's easy to see how he could cry out to God and say, you were a shelter for me, a tower of strength in the face of the enemy. He's faced a lot of enemies. Most of the time, he, he and his army would have been underdogs. Underdogs, they started, as, as I said, with Goliath, but it just continued from there. He had a few hundred. Saul had several thousand. His men were ill-equipped, living off the land and off of the kind hearts of certain people that would come and bring them food and sustenance. Saul, on the other hand, was the king, and he could draw from resources all over the kingdom. It goes on from there. The Philistines were more powerful. There were more of them. But God was always with David. It didn't matter which battlefield he was on. David knew that God was his tower of strength, that God was his shelter. Now, when he thinks of the shelter, this leads his, his prayer and his thought to the, to the tabernacle, the abode, the dwelling place of God. I will dwell in your tabernacle forever, in, into eternity. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Selah. Now let's think about this. In his heart, David sees himself in the tabernacle of Yahweh, in the shelter of his wings. That is descriptive of the holy place and then the holy of holies. What do you have there? Well, you have, you have the candle that burns all the time that uh, 
is representative of the presence of the Holy Spirit that lights the light in darkness. In from there, the Ark of the Covenant in which was the fulfilled law of Moses. The law had requirements, but being in the ark, in the presence of God, it meant that the law was taken care of by God. There was, a, there was manna in the ark. It spoke of sustenance and God always meeting the need. The mercy seat where the blood was spilled on the day of atonement was the assurance of eternal salvation and the glory, the Shekinah, the glory of Yahweh shined above the Ark of the Covenant in, uh, in the day of Moses. It even burst forth and came out as a pillar of fire. On the lid at the mercy seat were the two cherubim whose wings were stretched inward. They were high, wings stretched. The Ark of the Covenant, the lid, the mercy seat here, wings here. Anything sheltered under the wings by, as designated by God, anything in the shelter of those wings guaranteed salvation, guaranteed deliverance guaranteed redemption. So he says, in your tabernacle to eternity, this is, this is where God forgives sins. It's where God assures the relationship that exists between himself and his covenant people. His tabernacle, his tent, his tabernacle. And he says, I'm gonna be there forever. David knew that he was eternally saved, not because of his strength, but because of the strength of the God, his God, our God, who had established a covenant with him. He knew he was in the shelter of the wings. He believed in, in the blood sacrifice. In the, he believed in the atonement that was made he believed that God had fulfilled the law in his behalf as indicated by, by the tablets that were in the Ark of the Covenant and that God would sustain him like as was indicated by the manna uh, within the Ark of the Covenant. This is where he is. He sees himself there in the presence of God. I know the tabernacle is over there somewhere and I'm way out here at the end of the earth, but I'm telling you, I belong to you and I believe that you're going to shelter me like you've always been the tower of strength. For you, God, have hearkened to my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. In his vows, David had made sacrifices and those sacrifices were acceptable. David has been at this point in time through a very sinful and dark age in his life. The consequences of his sin are being meted out and measured upon him and upon his life and he knows it and he has, he has offered not just the sacrifice of blood but he's offered the, the sacrifice of his heart. Psalm 51, if you wanted the blood of animals, I'd give it. 
But you're wanting me, you want who I am. David knows that he has vowed to God and that God has hearkened to those vows. And he knows that his is the heritage of all of the saints, of all of the ages. The heritage of those who fear your name. Add days to the days of the king. His years as every generation. There are two requests here. The first one is this. Let me have my throne back. Add days presently to my reign as king. And the second request his years as every generation. Assure that your covenant with me is guaranteed and will be carried out into the ages of the ages. That the son of David will sit on the throne. So he's looking forward to his own savior. You know, Christ even quoted what David wrote. Uh, when he, when, he, when he referred to who his Lord was, he will dwell forever before God, the son of David, the king, both, both David and, his, and the Christ. Kindness, now that's that covenant word. That's the, that word speaks of covenant love. Covenant love and truth should be prepared to guard or to preserve him. David is saying in his prayer, my separation from the tabernacle, my not being seated on the throne, my being run out of the city of David, the city of Jerusalem, these are not right. These do not attend to truth. The truth is that David is to be seated on that throne. He's to have access to that tabernacle. And he is to be the king who lives in the city of David until God is through with him. And all of this is wrong. So he says, look, prepare, uh, preserve your truth. Guard your king and preserve your truth. Guard your truth. Then finally... He affirms his commitment to God. So I will sing praises to your name forever that I may pay my vows every day. Two things are in David's mind here. First is eternity. David sees himself as a singer of psalms forever into eternity. Some infinitely glorious day, the advertisement will be made and the grand arena of God's new Jerusalem will be filled with the saints who have been invited to hear David in concert. Now that's the gospel according to Charles. You can take it or leave it.
King David. The king in concert. How about that? I wonder if he'll wear one of those sequin things. But he can play the guitar in a great way. And so there'll be a great crowd. Or maybe he'll just always be out in his front yard, the front yard of his mansion, and we can always hear him singing praises. I don't know. But here's, the, here's what I do know. He says and declares, I will sing praises to your name forever. We talked about that this morning. The songs that he'll sing are not, are not about David. They're about Yahweh. They're not about the worshiper. They're about the one who is being worshiped. And he knows this. My guess is a whole new catalog book of, of Psalms. That I may pay my vows every day. Part of his sacrifice was a sacrifice of praise. To make his vow, to offer his sacrifice of praise all of his life, every day. So my guess is, for the rest of his life, early in the morning, you could probably hear when he gets back on the throne, you could probably hear King David tuning up his neganot. And not when, it, when it's in the plural, there'll be a bunch of them there jamming with David. I bet it was good. I bet it was good. Sing praises to your name forever that I may pay my vows every day. Oh, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Let's pray. We'll be through. Father God in heaven, oh, how we love you. How we long to be in your presence on that day when all of your saints are gathered there to enjoy you and to adore you and all that you've done for us. Bless us through the reading and study of this psalm, we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.